0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. There are those who write, and then there are writers. My guest today is most definitely a writer and a prolific one at that with seven dozen titles to his credit. Now, I thought RJ Rush was had a hefty number himself. George, I think you might actually um, challenge his number.
1: Well, I, I certainly won't ever challenge his, uh, his legacy, but I hope to be able to walk in it.
0: Okay, well, I think you have. Let me, <laughs> for those who may not know about you, and I'm gonna give a little bit of your bio, you're a pastor, At Parish Presbyterian Church. You're the founder of Franklin Classical School, the Chalmers Fund, the Kings Meadows Study Center. The topics you've covered are varied history, biography, politics, literature, and social criticism. And you've written hundreds of essays, articles, and columns. I told you, folks, he was prolific. His work on behalf of the homeless, for International Relief and Development, for Racial Reconciliation, and for the Sanctity of Human Life has been profiled in many varied media outlets. I could go on, but without further ado, thank you, George, for agreeing to join me today.
1: Oh, it is. It is my delight. Thank you for having me.
0: Now, it's a funny thing. I already know you in a way that you don't know me because I've read many of your books and articles. And it's always kind of interesting because that's how it was when I first met Dr. Rush Dooney, Sam Blumenfeld. A lot of these people, they were already friends of mine because I had written, I mean, I had read their stuff. And in a lot of ways, I think your readers probably know a lot more about you than maybe some people who casually know you in social circles or might be your neighbors.
1: Yeah. You know, that's one of the peculiar things. And I suppose one of the great gifts of, of writing is you wind up having friends all over the world. Some of them you may only meet face to face once or twice in a lifetime. And yet you you build these relationships and now with, uh, with email and text messaging. You can actually uh, keep up with them. I have about 30 uh, people scattered all over the world who are my prayer partners on Sunday mornings, and almost all of them I was able to meet because of this uh, this interesting calling that the Lord has placed on me.
0: Right. You know, a lot of people who I know who uh, take some of my classes or um, have read or listened to Dr. Rush Juni said, you know, I so wish I had known him, and I keep telling them, "You do know him. Yes. You know him very well because he wasn't all that different, and I, in person, than he was on his, you know, on, on paper." And I think a mark of a good writer is someone who, once you know the person, and then you read his or her writing, it sounds like you're talking to them.
1: Yes, you know, I I had the opportunity to uh, meet Rush, Dr. Rush Denny. On a number of occasions, we spoke at uh, conferences together a few times. And uh, I was struck because I had read so much of his work before I ever met him. I was struck by the, the, the fact that I wasn't at all surprised. I knew his tone, I knew his cadence. I, I knew w- what he was gonna talk about. I knew that he was gonna surprise me uh, with uh, richness and content and bedazzle me with uh, his intellect, but I was I was ready for that because I had read his work and he really was very much uh, embodied in the, the work that he did.
0: Yes, yes. So let's talk about being a writer. Um, I'm always fascinated with people like you who research and write about history and especially the biographies of notable people. And I say notable people, because not everybody you've written about, you would consider a good person by biblical standards. So would you mind describing how as a writer, you take your interest and you turn them into books?
1: Well, I think that's the key right there. You, you really nailed it. It's um, a, a great writer is really just an enthusiast who hones their craft to reflect their enthusiasms. I, I really am someone who is uh, fascinated by uh, the roots of w- what have uh, you know, g- given rise to current events. And so I, I love looking back and say, where, where does this come from and why? And so if there is a really, really pressing issue in the day, I'm going to look less at the pressing issue and more at all of the precedents that gave rise to that pressing issue. And that's really just an enthusiasm to know it's uh, so I, I often tell my students basically my career has been uh, following the footnote trail. (laughs) I, I, just become fascinated by some little tidbit. And that leads me on uh, some interesting little historical chase that uh, is fascinating to me. And then my job as a writer is to somehow convey that fascination, stir that enthusiasm for for others, for my readers and for my listeners.
0: Okay. So You have an interest, but how do you or do you bring objectivity, bias, the idea that you really can't approach any person or subject with neutrality because you have certain presuppositions? So how do you dig down and not put too much of George Grant into the book about other people?
1: Well, I think the first thing is to recognize what you just said, and that is that there is no such thing as pure objectivity. Uh, once you've recognized that and you know where your uh, presuppositions lie, what your biases are, uh, then you're able, if if you're honest about that, uh, to explore e- every side. And, and sometimes to be surprised that you're your mind is changed about a person or event or uh, a a policy or whatever. So part of it is just intellectual honesty, uh, something that I think is sorely lacking in our day. Uh, We look at modern journalism and it's not so much that there is a lack of objectivity. There is a complete blindness to the lack of objectivity that is so troubling. And so, I I start with the the recognition that I do have certain uh, presuppositions. Some of them I I, I trust are rooted in uh, uh, that which is good and right and true, that which springs up from the scriptures. Uh, But I also know that I'm a person of my time and uh, I have to constantly acknowledge that. And when I do, then I can go to primary source materials and see with a level of clarity and honesty that enables me to explore. Uh, the other thing that I do is, and this is something that I learned from people like uh, Dr. Rushtuni, and that is to read deep and to read wide. Uh, I, I remember one time uh, talking to uh, Dr. Rush Dooney, uh between sessions at a conference and I was, I was particularly enthralled by the wide range of sources uh, that he had used in his book, The One and the Many. I asked him, how, you know, where did he go to read and what did he read in preparation for that? And he had a really simple answer. He said, I read everything. <laughs> yes. and, and I think he did. And, you know, in some ways, that's what you've got to do. When I uh, wrote a biography of uh, Theodore Roosevelt, I tried to pretty much read everything. Uh, By everything, I mean, I read all of TR's books, more than 60. I read his correspondence. I read all of his uh, major biographies, including ones by family and friends, and... You you know, that that's where the the whole enthusiast part of being a writer comes in. You just become fascinated. And, you know, some people binge watch Netflix. I binge (laughs) read, you know, Thomas Chalmers or, you know, whatever. We'll
0: we'll get to in a bit. Um, It's funny that you talk about reading deep and wide, because no matter where Dr. Rush Juney went, he always had his host get him to the nearest bookstore. And he would come back. And I had the opportunity of spending close to 15 years being able to visit him on a regular basis. And every time we were going to have dinner, his wife, who always called him Roussas, said, "Russos, you have to take the books off the table. Otherwise, we won't be able to eat. Does your wife have um, book rules for you as to where they can be kept and where they
1: cannot be kept? Well after more than 45 years of marriage I've uh, I've, I've I've learned that uh, there are places to put books and places not. Uh, fortunately she's a bibliophile as well and so we have, we have books pretty much everywhere but we do we do try and uh, m- maintain a minimum amount of of clutter in, in the house. But but it's hard you know as uh, As Mark Twain always used to say, the greatest uh, lack in the universe is sufficient bookshelf space.
0: (laughs) I think a lot of um, our listeners would agree. Now, in looking over your vitae, it shows that starting back in 1984 is your first sort of credit on a book you had written. And It goes all the way up to 2021, which we've only been in for a couple of days. So some of these books you've written by yourself, some you've co-authored with other people, some you've been the general editor. How do you make those decisions, whether you're going to be the author or you're going to collaborate with someone else?
1: Well, sometimes it's opportunity. Sometimes it's uh, the peculiar circumstance of the hour or of the day And uh, sometimes it has to do with workload. Uh, At one time, I worked for uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy, and while I was on Dr. Kennedy's staff, I was uh, I was responsible for 600 employees. I had multiple departments that I was supposed to run and oversee. I had a multi-million dollar budget, and at the same time, I was I was writing about five or six books a year, uh, but I needed help, obviously, and so uh, I collaborated with uh, a number of uh, up-and-coming young scholars. Uh, I would come up with an idea, or I would have a, you know, a, a particular interest or uh, concern, and uh, I would collaborate with them, and that that was mostly a matter of time. Uh, Sometimes the the books that I've edited have been uh, the speeches of politicians. And so in in those cases, instead of doing a ghostwriting uh, kind of thing, I would simply take the material that they had or have their speeches transcribed, and then I would go in and edit those things. And uh, perhaps uh, that would include... I would go and solicit an introduction from someone and an afterward uh, from someone. And so there'd be the work of, you know, three or four people in a single volume. So a lot of this uh, circumstance, a lot of it uh, may have to do with workload. Sometimes, you know, early on when I was uh, attempting to make my living writing, which is not an easy thing to do, (laughs) I would, uh, I, I would simply Um, you know, do what publishers wanted me to do. If they came up with an idea and somebody in an editorial meeting said, Oh, I think George Grant could do this. And they pitched it to me. And if it was enough money, I would think that that puts food on the table for three months. Yes.
0: (laughs) But never compromising. In other words, you still did an honest rendition of whatever you were doing. They never asked you to come up with a conclusion.
1: Right, and I and I was always careful. I turned down far, far, far more books than I ever wrote uh, for those reasons. Um, at one point, I sort of got the reputation of doing these expose kind of books, and people thought of me as the guy who would just go after uh, every wicked and evil thing or every nefarious figure from history. And I'm much more interested in restoration uh, and reconstruction in our culture than I am in uh, merely critiquing all that is is ill with our day and time. So I I turned down a lot of things because of that. Well, one of your signature
0: books is on Margaret Sanger, and I think you have provided pro-life people with good information that I see repeated now often on news outlets, even when they're unfavorable to the pro-life position, the people who come and represent the pro-life position got a lot of their information, I can tell, from books like you wrote.
1: Yeah, and for that, I'm really grateful. I'm I'm grateful that I've been able to to have uh, some small measure of contribution to the pro-life cause I've I've been involved in the pro-life movement since before Roe v. Wade. Uh, I actually was a high school student living in Dallas, Texas, where the Roe v. Wade uh, case originated. And I remember going and hearing the uh, city attorney, uh, Henry Wade, uh, speak. Uh, me and about five guys crammed ourselves into a, a rickety Volkswagen bug and made our way and that was my first experience in the pro-life movement. And so to be able to contribute in meaningful ways is a really a great gift of grace that the Lord has afforded me.
0: And in looking over the list, I can see 2021 has listed the light of life, the gospel and the history of the pro-life cause from the first century to the present. So obviously, in all those years, you found more things to enlighten your readers with.
1: Yeah, you know, the thing is, is that the uh, pro-life cause and the proclamation of the gospel, they, they, the, those are inseparable concepts. You know, Jesus was the light of life, and he came uh, to overcome the minions of sin and death. So uh, when missionaries would go out, they inevitably faced the specter of human sacrifice or uh, the denigration of, of human beings in various ways, and so the gospel was the gospel of light and life and liberation uh, to the captives. It, uh, it, it was the voice of hope uh, for those who are unloved and unlovely and marginalized and poor, and as a result, you don't have to uh, do a whole lot of digging to realize virtually every single one of the great heroes of the faith throughout uh, church history spoke to this issue. So this this book is really uh, just uh, a kind of church history survey through the lens of how the heroes of the faith spoke to uh, the questions of the sanctity of life.
0: Yes. Yes. And that's great. And I'm looking over in 2004, you wrote about the importance of the Electoral College. You revised it in 2020. Um, You're very timely. And what I've actually loved about your work is you haven't forgotten young people. Um, It's easy to want to be a writer and write to the intellectuals, to the scholars, but a lot of your books were geared towards young people to learn about their history. And I know that you're a favorite author among a lot of them, especially in homeschooling
1: circles. Well, I'm, I'm grateful for that. My, my most recent release, the the light of life isn't out yet. It's coming in 2021, but the, my most recent release is actually my first true children's book. I've done books for young people and teens, and I've done curriculum uh, for uh, high schoolers. But uh, so I, I'm, it was a lot of fun. We have a fabulous illustrator in our congregation, and uh, he did the illustrations, and uh, I did the text. It was just a lot of fun.
0: So what's the name of that book?
1: It's uh, called A Very Luther christmas okay and it's uh, it's basically martin luther sitting in uh, the man's hall there in wittenberg with uh, his students all gathered around for one of his tabletop disquisitions and he tells them the story of boniface and uh, the origin of the christmas tree
0: nice and so when will that be out
1: Oh, it's out. Oh, it is out. Okay, very good. It's out.
0: All right. So when I was talking to a mutual friend and I said, so what do you think I should um, get George to talk about? And he said, oh, Thomas Chalmers. (laughs) And then when I asked you, because I always like my guests to talk about what they would like to talk about, and you said, Thomas Chalmers. So I have to admit, until both of you said that, I didn't ever hear that name before. If I did, it went right by me. So I didn't know very much about him. And so I did the cursory, Wikipedia, go online, whatever. But you obviously think Thomas Chalmers is an important guy.
1: Yeah, he's important and he's incredibly relevant. And part of what's so interesting to me is that he really is uh, one of the great forgotten heroes of Christian history Uh, Ian Murray, the founder and one of the great historians of our time, founder of uh, Banner of Truth, uh, wrote this. He said, uh, when Thomas Chalmers was born in 1780, it was about the deadest time in the history of the Church of Scotland since the Reformation. But when he died in 1847, it was about the alivest. And he said, the difference was almost entirely attributable to the Spirit's work through him.
0: So tell us a little bit about how you decided to take a deep dive into Thomas Chalmers.
1: Well, it's really interesting. I was uh, actually speaking in Oregon, in Eugene, at an education conference, and I was introduced by uh, one of the local pastors And he said, he introduced me by saying that I was the closest thing that he knew of in the then the end of the 20th century uh, to Thomas Chalmers. And I I knew that that was a compliment, but I didn't know (laughs) quite what kind of compliment that was. I'd actually only read one thing by Thomas Chalmers when I was in seminary, a very famous sermon that he preached entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, which is a great, great sermon. Uh, I've actually uh, done uh, a a small version, a paperback version of it, uh, with a new introduction to put it in its context. But I had read that. I'd even mentioned Chalmers' work Among the Poor in my first book, Entitled Bringing in the Sheaves, but truth be told, I really didn't know anything about him. Uh, As it turns out, Chalmers was this remarkable Renaissance man. He uh, was a writer, he was a pastor, he was a mathematician and scientist. Uh, He wrote books on a myriad of subjects from economics and social policy to systematic theology and strategic missional extension. He was a church planter. Uh, He helped uh, to uh, steer the Church of Scotland through tumultuous times, and then uh, when uh, it uh, was very evident that the church would not reform itself, He broke away with 400 pastors and established the Free Church of Scotland. Um, In his lifetime, the historian Kelton McPhee uh, said that uh, at the time of Chalmers' death, Scotland was now filled with men, and England has more than a few uh, such who never weary in giving utterance to their feelings when they speak of those uh, times of happy excitement that they spent in the presence of Dr. Chalmers uh, in the classroom or in the church. Uh, he was a great man who held the mind and soul of all present in his powerful grasp, Inasmuch as much as he sent forth over the surface of the earth a body of men who if they turn not aside from the path that he sent them forward may and with God's help bring about the Christian regeneration of Scotland and the spread of the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Wow. Hudson Taylor said that he was the virtual founder of the great missions movement of the 19th century. He was... uh, He he was the man who who mentored a host of great heroes of the faith like the three Bonar brothers and Robert Murray McShane and uh, Robert Chalmers Burns. Uh, He was uh, the person who started the Bible Society movement. He uh, was the founder of New College Edinburgh. He was uh, the close friend and ally of William Wilberforce. He was the mentor uh, to Gladstone and a, 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 you know, a remarkable, remarkable uh, advisor and counselor to everyone uh, uh, from uh, Gladstone and Disraeli, across the board, uh, to uh, people like uh, Wilmington and uh, Garston. He was uh, a close friend and ally of, uh, of uh, uh, D'Aubigné, the great church historian. Uh, he was an inspiration to Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bavink and uh, a friend of Grun van Prinsterer. I mean, he, he was just one of those looming figures now largely forgotten. And so that's uh, a so- good
0: question. This is a man who had tremendous. The names you've mentioned. I'll be honest. I know most of them, not all of them, but from what I did research, Chalmers was a humble man. He wasn't somebody who bragged a lot. He didn't, and he had um, definite change in his life at one point. Why do you think a man who influenced so many people has been forgotten?
1: I have this theory about history that the greatest people in history are not those who loom large over the movements that they launch, uh, the Charlemagnes and um, the Napoleons. Uh, I, I believe that the greatest men in history are those who build movements that loom large over them to the point that they're obscured. So, in other but words, those are, the, those are the great heroes of the faith. I, I look at people um, like Jan Amos Comenius, the father of modern education, or uh, Gerhard Grote, who was the one of the inspirations of Huss and uh, a contemporary of Wycliffe, and was as much a morning star of the Reformation as the two of them. And I think, you know, that's, that is where true greatness is. You, you see this guy, he labors, he labors all of his life. He pours into his disciples and the disciples become greater than him. That's, that's a great hero of the faith.
0: Well, I imagine after um, being introduced as the Thomas Chalmers of your day, um, and then you explored, you realize, at least I realize now, what motivates you to continue to teach, to speak, to write. Why do you think Chalmers is particularly relevant today as opposed to other times in history?
1: Well, uh, one of the things about Chalmers was he recognized the complete decadence of both the church hierarchy and, and structures of his day and Uh, the political hierarchy and structures of his day. And so he very courageously ministered uh, and and spoke prophetically uh, to a day of cultural chaos, all the while recognizing that his primary job was one of restoration. And that's why he poured into so many uh, young people, had such vision for missions, for Bible societies, Uh, why he understood the importance of using the widow's might to build the kingdom rather than simply go after the multi-million dollar uh, philanthropic grant. Uh, He was uh, someone who, uh, in in my view, lays a framework for us in our time, in our own day of cultural chaos and, and corruption. So that's the first thing. Uh, The second thing is is that he was a remarkably broad scholar. He wasn't narrow. But we live in a day of uh, specialization where our experts know a whole lot about a whole little. Uh, And uh, Chalmers was someone who was uh, extremely broad in his understanding. And so he could speak to people in all spheres of life. He was was a man who grasped the importance of worldviews, of presuppositions. He understood the necessity of reformation needing to be deep and slow. All, All of those are features that I think are vital for our own day. Uh, And then finally, I I think, you know, I I love the courage of Chalmers. I love the fact, uh, though, that he was, as you just mentioned, incredibly humble. He didn't need to take credit for for anything. And uh, he was happiest when his students, uh, his disciples, the young men in his church, picked up the mantle and went forward. He did. One of the things that that I love the most about Teddy Roosevelt is that Teddy Roosevelt ruined his career three or four times along the way by following the path of what he believed was right and good and true. In other words, he stepped away from places of power and influence and privilege in order to, uh, to do what was right. And Chalmers was very much that kind of man. Over and over and over again, he stepped away from places of fame and uh, prominence in order to pour into what he believed was right and good. So when he went to Glasgow, just after the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, uh, he was the the pastor of the largest, most prominent, uh, and the richest church in Scotland. He stayed for four years. He was dissatisfied because uh, being there gave him no opportunity to minister to the poor. And so he uh, gained permission from the presbytery to plant a church in the poorest section of Glasgow. And there he built a model of pastoral care and ministry that actually eliminated the entire poor law welfare system in that parish. It was was extraordinary. And then after a few years there, he realized that the most important thing that he could do was prepare young men for the ministry to do the same thing that he had. Why have one Chalmers when you can have a hundred Chalmers? Right. So he left, again, that place of, of prominence and and, you know, a vital sort of communication with the wider world, the center of publishing, the center of political influence. And he went off to tiny St. Andrews University, which at that time was in grave decline, had less than 300 students. And he poured himself into a handful of young men, including a very famously, uh, the St. Andrews 7, men who helped to launch the modern missions movement uh, and the modern church planting movement. I love that about Chalmers. And then at the end of his life, when he really could have rested on his laurels, uh, when the church became so corrupted that it could no longer be trusted to reform itself, he established, he walked away from everything, and risked his reputation, his his future, his family's security, because he believed that God was calling him to a faithful church, and so they planted uh, the Free Church of Scotland. Over the next five years, the last five years of his life, he helped to plant uh, more than 500 churches and more than 700 schools, and actually raised the money and had the facilities built for all of them before his death. So some people would say, wow, that's quite
0: um, a list of accomplishments. He must have been a remarkable person. Um, God doesn't give too many people that ability, but in looking at him and other people you've written about, do you think it's less that they were so great— but that they were determined to make their life mean something for the Lord.
1: Yeah, I I do think that he was precociously gifted. And that was very evident uh, as a young man coming up through university. Uh, But he was actually a pastor for five years before he was converted. No, wait, 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 what? Go back. (laughs) He was a pastor for five years before he was converted. And uh, so when he was converted, he suddenly realized how he was, he was squandering his gifts. He realized that there was a vast, vast difference between smart and gifted uh, and uh, being wise and effective. So he dedicated his, the rest of his life to being wise and effective. And he realized that being uh, smart and gifted is not all that it's cracked up to be. The The world is filled with really smart, really gifted people. But uh, without that consecration, without that sanctification, uh, without that determination, those gifts are, 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 in the end, wasted. He realized that. He tried to communicate that to his students. He believed that the most important thing that he could do in a day is walk with a student after class and pray with them. He gathered students in his home. He was, it was one of those amazing figures in history who realized that whatever gifts the Lord had given him, and to be sure, he was a great orator. He was a a precise and creative thinker, uh, which sometimes got him into trouble. but the the truth is, is what he what he lived for was to give it all away
0: so was there something special that happened i mean um he was a pastor he was a shepherd but maybe his view was he was more a hireling than a shepherd until his conversion do you can you talk about the circumstances of what brought about that change
1: yes he was you know much of the national church in both England and Scotland was it was uh, basically an academic exercise. Uh, you don't have to read too deeply in Jane Austen or Sir Walter Scott uh, to realize that the church was oftentimes really just an extension of the academy uh, with uh, moralistic tones. He was uh, a moralist. Uh, he believed in, in doing good. Uh, he loved, uh, early on, uh, in his ministry, the the, the passage from uh, Micah's great uh, covenant lawsuit sequence in Micah chapter six, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly uh, with your God. The problem was, is that he didn't realize that man could not do that in his own strength. Um, he would, uh, he would later in his life sit by first a brother and then a sister on their deathbed. Long, lingering, awful deaths from tuberculosis. And he, because he was the pastor brother, uh, would sit and read to them and sing psalms to them. And as he would sing the psalms to them, uh, the, uh, the, the Word of God began to do a powerful work. Uh, his brother, in particular, wanted him to read to him the sermons of John Newton. And he hated John Newton. He hated <laughs> that emphasis on amazing grace. Uh, but, uh, but his brother was dying, and so he granted the wish, but the Word of God began to work on his heart. And then Chalmers himself fell ill and he was in bed believing that he too would soon die when he he had this sudden revelation. It was uh, uh, partly Psalm 24, which he had sung over and over and over again to his brother and to his sister. Um, and uh, it, Psalm, Psalm 24 has this uh, Great declaration, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And then in verse 3, we have this stunning question. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? The answer that comes in the next couple of verses are, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Chalmers was suddenly thunderstruck. Who has clean hands? Who has a pure heart? Who who among us has not lifted up their soul to an idol or sworn by what is false? He was just devastated by his sin, and he realized that the only hope for him uh, was the substitutionary atonement of Christ— that he needed to throw himself entirely upon the hope of his grace in order for him to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with his God. And so he, in a sense, had a deathbed conversion. <laughs> wow. Except that he didn't die. Except he did not die.
0: <laughs> so, what is the time span from this? profound change to the end of his life where all this work that you've described that he did, how much longer did he live?
1: It was 1807 uh, and 1808, uh, the the, the winter of 1807 and 1808, when he had this uh, profound experience and uh, he did not die until 1847.
0: So God gave him a lot more years.
1: Gave him 40 years.
0: Yeah, and how old was he when he passed?
1: Uh, he was he was just in his sixties. He was uh, he, he was uh, sixty four years old.
0: I see. So this transformation happened when he was relatively young by our yes. standards.
1: Yes, he actually he you know he he was a precocious intellect. Uh, so precocious that the Church of Scotland in the day uh, had a requirement that a man could not be ordained until he was 21, uh, but Chalmers uh, received an exception and was ordained when he was 19.
0: So let me ask you this. You you said that Chalmers can speak to our day. Um, I'm pretty sure that throughout history, people have thought they've been living in the worst times, and if this happens, oh, we're doomed, And so we're coming up on what some people think is going to be the end of life as we know it. But, you know, that seems very nearsighted, especially to a historian like yourself, who would say, "Uh, not so much.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This is not exactly the 14th century. And uh, uh, COVID is not even the Spanish flu of 1918, much less is it Uh, the bubonic plague of the 14th century. Uh, So yeah, we're we're living in uh, disruptive times, times of of real concern. Uh, Part of the reason that things look so alarming to many Christians is that we have enjoyed a season of unprecedented freedom and prosperity and opportunity So there are great challenges in front of us. But uh, our task uh, is uh, not simply to resist uh, the minions of totalitarianism and all of the rest, although uh, there will be times when we will have to do that. Our job is to lay the foundations and to build. Uh, We have uh, every... Uh, reason to issue forth with dire Jeremiads in our day. But uh, my uh, sense is that the greatest thing that we could be doing is issuing forth with Nehemiahs, uh, taking a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other and taking our place to rebuild the walls.
0: And so for those who hear what you just said, and and like I said, my listeners are Calcedon folks by and large, that our greatest influence, and we could probably learn this a lot from Chalmers, is with the people who you have in front of you and to inspire them to go out and obey God using the gifts and talents that they have, rather than Chalmers figuring he had to be everything to everybody.
1: Absolutely. When, when we have a stovepipe, uh, to use a uh, kind of management term a stovepipe uh, approach to leadership where the one guy makes the decisions the one guy is the hero uh, the one guy speaks for all uh, you can have a little bit of impact you can maybe build a mega church and you know have a a season of generational influence uh, but is that going to have enduring value But what if you were to pour yourself into that handful of people that God places around you, equip them, encourage them, and send them with zeal? Won't that change the world far more effectively? I I, I believe that's the biblical model. That's the model that, uh, that Jesus gives us of discipleship. And I believe that men like Chalmers, who model that well, Uh, provide for us a real clear blueprint for the future.
0: Right. I know when I see you pictured, you like being pictured with children, especially your grandchildren. Um, I know that feeling. The interesting part is I think that there are people now who are thinking this is a terrible time to bring children into the world and the world, look what's happening and whatever. Is there ever a time that one should not want to bring children into the world?
1: not from a biblical perspective. Uh, From a biblical perspective, uh, children are a blessing, a a heritage of the Lord. And so uh, children uh, give us hope, Uh, children make us work harder. Uh, You know, it's uh, it's often said that uh, men need wives in order to think about more than just today. And men need children in order to think about more than just tomorrow.
0: That's so true. That's so true.
1: Men tend to live longer when they're husbands and fathers. Yes, and uh, we we have a reason. We uh, we we fight back from illness faster. We you know, we l- l- lay up an inheritance uh, for the future because we know uh, that uh, we have to number our days. So you know, I I, I think that um, deferring gratification is one of the richest, richest second and third order consequences of a Christian worldview in a culture. Uh, we we recognize that we work hard uh, and we're laying up for the future, not for ourselves. I, I, I love what uh, Jan Amos Comenius said. Uh, when he declared, let us build for the day that we will not see.
0: Yes, yes. And, you know, with the whole lockdown intrusion, the tyrannical mandates, I think a byproduct is people learned what was important and what wasn't. You know, you could do without going out to restaurants three or four times a week. You could um actually sit down and have time to read if you couldn't do anything else so we should seize the opportunities that this time has given us but i'm encouraged to hear you say and i'm glad that people will hear what you did say that we should study we should have a wide range of interests and knowledge about a wide range of things because as things decentralize we're going to need people who know something who are not just so specialized in one thing That, you know, they don't know how to build a fire, put out a fire, um, help someone who's sick.
1: Yeah, I think uh, this uh, last year was really good in uh, reminding us that there are some things about the old normal that needed to go away. And there were some uh, ancillary benefits of, you you know, parents rediscovering their children, uh, board games around... Uh, you know the fire in the winter time, story time, uh, d- dinner table conversations that had sort of been shoved to the margins by the hustle and bustle of modern life, and uh, so all of those have been real benefits. I'm no fan of the you know executive orders and and the draconian lockdowns, uh, but in the providence of God, I am grateful that we have had this opportunity to reset, uh, to evaluate what our priorities are and to uh, invest ourselves in permanent things rather than those transitory uh, sorts of ephemeral things.
0: Right. Well, I live in Silicon Valley, a very underchurched area to say the least. And the few churches that remain open are drawing people not on denominational grounds, not on political grounds, but they're coming because they want to be with the body of Christ. And right. it's it's made me rethink, not my position on certain aspects of doctrine or eschatology, but to recognize that the Holy Spirit can be recognized in people whose doctrine isn't the same as yours.
1: Amen. Amen. We have seen the same thing. And it's an incredible delight to see both the winnowing process. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm not sure that I am going to uh, particularly despair the demise of uh, marginal churches. Right. Uh, so we, the, we have this winnowing process, uh, and simultaneously, we've, we've got uh, a strengthening going on among those who recognize how precious. Uh, the gift of uh, Lord's Day worship actually is. Right, that it's a gift
0: and something that was taken away. And I'm just encouraged by hundreds of people who show up on Sundays who want to meet you because you came. Amen. You know, so that's great. So how do people find out more about your new ventures? How do they, I mean, are there places they can go, websites or whatever that they can get all about George Grant.
1: Sure. Yeah. All all of the podcasts and uh, blogs and uh, essays and books are, it's all available at georgegrant.net.
0: Okay. Well, good. And I certainly appreciate, um, I'm not a very famous podcast, but I, you know, one request and you said yes. So I was delighted. So thank you so much for doing that.
1: Uh, absolutely, it is my great, great delight. I have, uh, you know, r- written for and supported and loved the work of uh, Calcedon for many, many years, and uh, so it, this is uh, this is a, a, you know, a very wonderful gift.
0: Oh, great. Well, happy New Year to you and to us and listeners. If you'd like to comment on this. Or suggest any topics for the future, feel free to contact me through Out of the Question Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information
1: on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.